Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 473 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and your host. We talk about all things to do with the world of writing, publishing, and how to succeed as an author or writer. All right, so what a week. It has been a busy one for me as I've had family visit from overseas and I went to a great play called White Pearl at the Sydney Theatre Company. So it was fab to get back into the theatre again. We also ran a creative coaching Zoom session for our creative writing graduates from all over the country and the world, really, um, with the very clever authors, Victoria Perman, who we chatted to in episode 283 of this podcast, and Pamela Freeman, also known as Pamela Hart, who is about to release her, wait for it, 41st published novel. We last spoke to her on episode 419 when she released her last novel, Digging Up Dirt. Now, the topic of this creative coaching session was awesome. It was um, how to write a great opening for your novel. So it was great to see so many of you on Zoom and thank you so much for all of the positive feedback. I love that we're able to bring these creative coaching sessions to our graduates as a bonus resource and, you know, for you to be able to connect with these fantastic authors and with the center. But back to the play, because I did say that I would report back on it. I absolutely loved it. It was written by Thai Australian playwright and truly Felicia King, and it's set, interestingly, in a corporate office in Singapore of a cosmetics company that's accused on social media of creating a racist ad about skin whitening cream. Now, I must admit that I did wonder whether a story in this setting would connect with an Australian audience, but judging by the feedback and the approval of the crowd, it certainly did, and it certainly did with me for sure. Now, it's already been previously produced by Queensland Theatre. They had the foresight to put this play on last year. It was, you know, good on them. And I have no doubt that with its success at the Sydney Theatre Company, it won't be long before it's produced in other states as well. Interestingly, I sat next to someone who attended the first ever reading of the play at Columbia University in New York, so it's had a circuitous route to Sydney. There were many themes in the play, including the effect of cancel culture, um, corporate accountability, racism, including racism between and within different Asian cultures, all set against a very funny black comedy, and it was done so well. One of the things that I found interesting and very authentic was that in this corporate office, the characters were all of different nationalities. There was a Thai American, Singaporean, Chinese from China, South Korean, Japanese, a British educated Indian boss, and a French guy. Now, it is easy for someone to think that those characters were kind of just lumped together in order, like specifically so that they could, you could explore those different cultures. And it might be easy to think that it's probably not realistic for all your colleagues to be from different cultures, but actually it is very authentic because one of the things I noticed when I worked in Singapore for three years in the publishing industry was how much more cosmopolitan the workforce is can be there, is there, in particularly in corporates. You know, it wouldn't be unusual for you 
for you to be working with so many people from different countries. And yes, there were actually more French guys than you would expect working there because certainly at the time, and I'm not sure what it's like now, there was some kind of national service program that French guys had to go on and that could involve choosing to go for overseas work experience. Anyway, great play. I can't wait to see what this playwright does next. And it certainly inspired me to get back into the theatre more regularly. In other news, let's talk about The Stellar Count. This, okay, if you haven't heard of The Stellar Count, this is a statistical analysis of gender bias in book reviewing in Australia. So the Stellar Count surveys 12 Australian publications, including, you know, national, metropolitan, some regional papers, journals, magazines, and so on. And they collect the data on the gender of authors and reviewers, as well as things like the length of review and the genre and stuff like that. Now, for the first time in Stellar Count history and, you know, possibly Australian history, The 2019 and 2020 counts, stellar counts, have seen the representation of women authors in Australian book reviews reach and exceed parity with their male counterparts. So this is pretty big. The 2019 count showed 53% of books reviewed by Australian publications were by women, with this increasing to 55% in 2020. Now, you might be wondering, well, what about 2021 and whatever? But the, the, the thing is that the 2019 and 2020 Stellar Counts were only just released because they were all delayed by COVID and stuff like that. So we only have the most, they are the most up-to-date Stellar Counts. So it will be very interesting to see how it then goes for 2021 and 2022. Let's hope that it keeps up the same pace. The good news about books continues. Apart from the Stella Count, according to an article in the Sydney Morning Herald, the rise of book talk has mean has had such a positive impact on the publishing industry. And thank you to Dean for highlighting this article to me. Uh, it was in the Sydney Morning Herald, and according to Joe Rubbo from Readings, the bookshop, the beautiful bookshop in Melbourne. Um, he's observed a change in his clientele over the past year. Okay, so apparently the usual crowd of those aged between 40 and 60 are still there, but there is a new crowd of regulars and they are teenage girls. He says that the number of teenage girls coming to buy books has increased exponentially and I think this is fantastic news because apparently reading is cool again thanks to book talk, which has gone nuts. Um, This is obviously books on TikTok and it's basically, you know, videos of people talking about their favorite books or giving recommendations and reviews. Sometimes some of these book talkers film their emotional reactions when they're reading really full on scenes or they show off their beautiful shelves that might be um, color coordinated or they show off their beautifully stylish reading nooks. Um, And apparently this is a trend that is really making a huge difference into the publishing and book selling industry. According to the article, uh, Dimix, Australia's top 10 bestsellers last week, of the top 10, six were books trending on BookTok. And in the Sydney George Street Dimmick store, they now devote an entire section to book talk titles. Now, the article states, and I quote, in Australia, there has been a 27% increase in sales of young adult fiction since 2019, 
bringing in $34.6 million last year, according to book sales data provider Nielsen. A survey by the organisation also found that 45% of book buyers aged between 16 and 24 agreed or strongly agreed that they read more books than they used to. And 28% reported they discussed books online in the past three months, unquote. So good news, certainly for young adult authors, and no doubt there's going to be a knock-on offence. So I think also good news for authors generally. Let's move on to our giveaway this week. We have three copies of 56 Days to give away by Catherine Ryan Howard. No one even knew they were together. Now one of them is dead, 56 days ago. Kira and Oliver meet in a supermarket queue in Dublin and start dating the same week COVID-19 reaches Irish shores, 35 days ago. When lockdown threatens to keep them apart, Oliver suggests they move in together. Kira sees a unique opportunity for a relationship to flourish without the scrutiny of friends and family. Oliver sees a chance to hide who and what he really is. Today, detectives arrive at Oliver's apartment to discover a decomposing body inside. Can they determine what really happened or has lockdown created an opportunity for someone to commit the perfect crime? We have three copies of 56 Days to give away. Entries close on the 21st of March. So just go to writercentre.com.au slash win for your chance to win one of these three copies. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. Now, everyone, are you ready for the word of the week? I hope so. It is inspissate. Inspissate, I-N-S-P-I-S-S-A-T-E, inspissate. Now, this is a verb meaning to thicken or to make dense, like the way, you know, gravy gets thicker the longer you cook it. So you could say the air seemed to inspissate around them as they crept deeper into the caves. There you go. I like that one, inspissate. See if you can use that this week in a sentence. And that was the word of the week. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. I am so excited to bring this author to you. As soon as I heard about her book and read it, I knew that we had to talk to her because this book has gone nuts all over the world and it's also going to be made into a film starring Florence Pugh and it's just a publishing sensation. I'm talking about The Maid by Nita Prose. And you know what? Let's just get straight into it. I hope you enjoy my chat with Nita. Thank you so much for joining us today, Nita. Thank you so much, Valerie. I'm so excited to be here and to talk to you today. 
I'm very excited because <clears throat> your book, The Maid, has just taken the world by storm. It is, it's gone ballistic. Um, all right. So many questions. Let's just start with for readers who haven't had a chance to get their hands on a copy, what is the story about? All right. Well, the maid features Molly, who is a socially awkward hotel room maid whose world gets turned upside down when she stumbles across an infamous guest who's very dead in his hotel room bed. And, you know, this is this is a book about what it means to be the same as everyone else and yet entirely different. And it's also a whodunit, but it's a little bit unusual because the mystery can only be solved through a connection to the human heart. So you have been in the publishing industry for quite a while, and I'm going to um, explore that a little bit more in a sec. But tell us how did the, this is your debut novel, though. So how did the idea for this spark? Well, Valerie, I didn't intend to write a debut novel. That wasn't like <laughs> on my bucket list. Um, it really was like a bolt out of the blue. And I'll tell you how it happened. So yes, I am an editor. That is my day job. And in 2019, I was at the London Book Fair, which of course is a book fair that happens every year in London. And it gathers agents and, and publishing people from all over the world. And I was staying at a London area hotel and I stepped out of my hotel for a business meeting. And when I returned and opened the door to my room, I stumbled across the maid and she was cleaning it. And I remember her jumping back into this shadowy corner. And the embarrassing part is that she was holding my track pants in her hand, which, of course, like a fool, I had left <laughs> in a tangled mess on my bed. And I looked at That's her. That's not that and, embarrassing, you know, it's oh, not well, like it she was holding worse. your underwear. <laughs> Well, exactly. It could have been worse, but you know, it, you know, in retrospect, I've learned don't do that. Um, so, you know, I looked at her and I thought like, it's such an invisible and intimate job to be a roommate. You know, she'd been cleaning my room day after day. She knew so much about me, but I knew not a thing about her. And it was funny. It was just one of those little moments that somehow lodges in the back of your brain. I didn't think about it after that. But then a few days later, I was on my plane ride home and that's when it really hit me. And it was Molly's voice and it was clean and crisp and precise. You know, it was polished to perfection. Mm -hmm. It sounded <laughs> just like that in my head. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have any paper. So I grabbed the napkin from under my drink and I wrote the <laughs> prologue in a single burst. I know it's ridiculous. It's a total cliche, but it's actually the truth. So I can't really change the story now. And that wow. prologue is the prologue to The Maid. Okay. So that's 2019 and you're writing this on the plane on your way back from London. When you were writing the prologue though, did you know it was going to be a novel? I did. I, I knew pretty quickly that there was enough in this German of an idea that I really wanted to give it my very best try. And I, that motivated me. Like that voice really drew me to wake up at horrendous hours of the morning, <laughs> 5 a.m., to do, you know, a stint of writing before my day job began at nine. So at that point, though, did you know it was going to be a whodunit or were you just intrigued by the character of Molly? I knew a few things. I wasn't really sure if I had two feet firmly in the mystery world or in the thriller world, but I knew a couple of important things. I knew, A, that she was a maid, 
And I knew she worked at a hotel. So those were sort of gifts that came with that voice. And so then I thought more about it. And it became clear to me that this was going to be a kind of whodunit. And mm. I wanted to have a nod to the, the glory in the Art Deco world of, you mm. know, something like the Agatha Christie, of course, the master of the genre. And so that took me down the avenue of, of this particular novel. So that's interesting that you say that about that that vibe, that Agatha Christie kind of Art Deco vibe, because even though this is a contemporary novel, the atmosphere, the feel, the the vibe that you have created is so distinct to kind of make you think, is it actually from another era? Now, what did you have to, obviously you wanted that vibe, so that's what you were going for. What did you have to do on a technical level to achieve that when actually it's a contemporary setting? Well, you know, it was a tricky balance of many things. Um, So I had to balance dark and light um, and evil and good and contemporary and traditional. And so part of my joy and exploration was seeing how I could push the boundaries, the extended ends of all of those extremes. You know, the difficult part of writing a mystery is that it's such a well-trod genre. There are so many masters of it, not only Agatha Christie, of course, but so many people have followed in her footsteps and created incredible works. And so my challenge was figuring out how am I going to innovate and do something different while paying homage to, you know, sort of the hallmarks and traditions that we all love about the mystery genre. And my solution, of course, was in a genre blend. So we have on the one hand, a traditional whodunit, which has, you know, a flavor of the board game clue and a nod to Agatha Christie, and maybe even some of the tonal Um, consistency of Knives Out. But on the other hand, there's something else going on here that isn't just a mystery, and it is a journey of growth. Um, You know, a novel that really influenced me was Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman. I think this was a genre game changer in our market a few years ago, because we had as our lead protagonist, this young woman who was so traumatized and so cactus prickly. And yet, as a reader, you dislike her at the beginning, and the journey is all about finding love for her. And that was extremely beguiling to me. And so with Molly, I wanted the reader to sort of step behind her eyes, to live inside her skin. And hopefully, if I've done my job right, to live for a while as Molly is to come to love her. Well, Molly is also about to come to life on the screen because it's going to be made into a movie starring Florence Pugh, (laughs) who is such a fantastic actress, I think Oscar-nominated actress, and um, and a young woman who really, I can really picture her as Molly. But before we get on to, oh, my God, it's being made into the film, take me back, you're on the plane, and give me, can you talk to a kind of timeline as to when you wrote it and you have a day job, so how you fit it in um, and how long it took before you got to a draft that you were happy with? Well, I always have two uh, answers for that question. And so my answers are the book took me five months to write and the book took me 20 years and five months to write. (laughs) So I will explain because that makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, 
I've been working in the publishing industry for almost two decades, and I have learned everything I know about craft and storytelling from building out worlds with my authors, from their allowance of me in the midst of their of their worlds and their stories. And that has given me, um, you know, such a, a rule book and a guidebook in order to write this novel. So when I did actually commit to giving it a true uh, try, you know, getting that first draft down, it did only take me about five months. But, you know, that is because uh, I had studied as an apprentice for mm. so very long. Yes, yes. And so in those five months, though, did you write in early in the morning when did you write (laughs) I am an early morning uh writer for for the most part so I changed my life entirely I got up at 5 a.m every day and I worked for four hours before starting my day job (gasps) at nine wow yeah Yeah. and then sometimes if I had the energy sometimes I did sometimes I didn't then I do another stint at night usually not writing but um, you know, reading what I'd read in the morning, editing it and making a plan for my writing day the next morning. So it was strenuous and arduous, but I learned a sort of muscle memory from it that I still use today. So I get up every morning at 5 a.m. and I write. Wow. Okay. So when you were writing in that five months, did you give yourself five months or did you kind of go, I'll just write until it's finished? No, I get, yeah, I gave myself no deadlines whatsoever. I just, um, I just let myself be motivated by the engine of the story. And that took me back every morning, which is telling. Yes. And then did you then have any kind of benchmark or word count goal to achieve in a week or a day? No, um, not really. There were, you know, I think on my best days, like there was one day that I wrote about 5,000 words. And, um, you know, the reason I did is because I'd been waiting so long to get to this scene. Now I can't tell you exactly. No, no spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) But I can say it was a very important moment with Molly and Gran, her grandmother. And the reason why I could write, you know, so much in a single sitting was because I'd been building to that moment. I knew it was coming. I knew from the get-go, I knew from very early on in my drafting process that this was a tentpole that I had to reach. And I was holding back the writing of that scene for a very long time. So when I finally got there and could allow myself to write, it came out fairly fully formed because, you know, Mm. I've been working on it in my mind. So with the exception of that pivotal scene, did you know what was going to happen in this in this plot or did you just discover it as you started writing? I, you know, I consider myself a tentpole writer. And what I mean by that is I actually won't let myself do much until I know like some of the pivotal twists and and turns, the tentpoles in my story structure. You know, uh, I, I understand structure because of my day job and I, I really value it as a tool. So, you know, I did know the twists and turns, but what I didn't know was how I was going to get there. And I actually found that to be a motivating mm. force. There is something I know and something I don't. And that kept me waking up every morning. So let's talk about your career because you have been in the publishing industry for 20 years, as you've mentioned. 
what, how did you start? Give us a very brief kind of career history, how you started, well, why you wanted to get into it in the first place, how you started and then your career tra- trajectory so far. I have only ever been good at one thing, and that is telling stories or helping other people tell stories. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it took me a little while to figure out a place where m- that particular skill might fit. Um, but I eventually did. I went to university. I went to publishing school and I loved every second of it. So the way into the industry uh, in Canada and probably in a lot of places is through internships. And, you know, it's really old school sort of vocation in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, I was able to understudy with some of the most brilliant editors in Canada. I was able to, you know, read manuscripts and the notes that they left in the margins. I mm. remember being an intern and being so excited about photocopying. Why was I excited about photocopying? Not because of the photocopying, but because I could read the conversations in the margins between writers and editors. Mm. And oh my goodness, it was just like a whole world opened up to me and I knew I'd found my calling. So from there, you know, you start at the bottom. I was an intern. I got my first job as a production editor. So that means, you know, you're working with pages, you're dealing with copy edits, you're um, making sure there aren't orphans and widows on the ends of lines. You know, it's a, it's a very structural pursuit. Um, but it does give you a, an excellent sense of the components that make a, a book a book. You know, the page counts, the signatures, the, the cover copy, the flaps, etc. And after that, you know, I became an assistant editor and so on. And I worked my way up senior editor. And now I find myself in a position of editorial director at one of the houses in Canada. So now you're an editorial director. You have, when you were writing this book, did you tell anyone? (laughs) (laughs) Did you You tell your colleagues? (laughs) You are so sussing me out, Valerie. It's like, it's like, you know me. I told no one, no one. And when I mean I told no one, I don't just mean I didn't tell my colleagues. I didn't tell my partner. I didn't tell my family. I didn't you didn't tell, my tell your friends. partner. No. What did your partner think you were doing in the morning at 5 a.m.? Well, I am a bit of a workaholic in my day job. So when I said, <laughs> you know, I've, I've got so many edits right now, I'm going to get up early for, for a while here. I got a, I've got a, <laughs> I've really got a lot of work to do. And he saw me sitting at the computer hours later when he got up. Um, he didn't, you know, question it too much, except to say, uh, you got to stop this. This is, this is a <laughs> lot. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, I didn't want anyone to know because I'm in the industry. You know, everyone thinks, oh, you're in the industry. You have all these ins and it must have been much easier for you. Oh, let me tell you, the psychological barriers in my particular case were so massive. Yes. I was terrified that I would submit my work and agents and publishers would say, oh, it's so lovely. And (laughs) oh, you've tried your work as a writer. Um, Congratulations, (laughs) but it is so not for us. And in that coded language, I would know that I suck. And so that was the sort of story I told myself. And it was a pretty dark story. Um, You know, so it took me a long time to just get that out of my mind and just focus on the work itself. And then when I was done, I put my big girl boots on and I did press send. And I was just 
beyond delighted and honestly a little shocked that the story I told myself wasn't the story that actually occurred. Okay, so you press send. Who were you pressing send to and were you identifying yourself? (laughs) I was identifying myself because it was so, like, blatantly obvious who I was. I mean, (laughs) I associated with a pen name, Nita Prose. That's not my real last name. My real last name is Pronovo, an impossible name to spell, and it does not fit nicely on a book cover. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I pressed send to various agents, but there was one agent in particular who, for me, was the pinnacle person who I wanted to represent this book, and that was Madeline Milburn um, of the Milburn Agency in the UK. And I was so um, just beguiled by her because she is the agent who understood before the rest of the world that Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, was uplit, uplifting literature, you know, a feel-good fiction, as we say in North America. It was a new genre that emerged with that very book and really redefined what you could do on the page with, um, with a prickly cactus character. And because she intimately understood what that book was and how that journey of a spirit can um, move readers, she was, you know, my ideal agent. And she read the manuscript and she liked it. And I'm telling you, I literally, for the first time in my life, when she, when I opened the email and she said, I, I would love to take you on, I literally dropped to my knees. I have never done that <laughs> in my entire life. I doubt I will do it ever again, but I knew what that meant. I knew wow. what it meant when Maddie took me on. And at that point, then did you tell your partner? <laughs> yeah, I kind of had to, before that, you know, before that, when I was actually done the draft, before I sent it out, that's when I when I told my partner and, and um, I confessed. Was he quite shocked that the person he was living with had written an entire novel and he didn't even know? Well, he was telling me for years, why don't you write a novel? Why don't, why do you, why, 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 why? So no, he was like, I knew it. I knew you had to be up to something. (laughs) All right. That's because he knows he knows me so well. He knew not to interfere, Mm. (laughs) but that is a really good question. Why now? Why haven't you written one before? You know, partly because I love my day job so much um, that I really do love the work that I do with other authors on their narrative worlds. And partly because this idea was just so striking to me that I felt um, a deep commitment to give it a good and proper try. Mm. So your agent gets the book deal, and now you're on the other side of the table and you have to work with someone like you <laughs> who uh-huh. is giving you feedback on your your novel and the characters and the structure and so on. So what was that experience like and was it what you expected? You know, it, obviously it was because, you know, editorial is my is in my blood. It was so utterly important to me to find the right editors. And, you know, I think a lot of writers um, think of editors in an adversarial sort of way, especially debut authors. Um, But I know because of my experiences that when you find an editor or editors who share your vision for a book, 
the results can be extraordinary and they can elevate your work in such fundamental and important ways. Mm. So I actually had uh, three incredible editors. So Nicole Wynn Stanley at Viking in Canada, Charlotte Brabham in the UK at Harper Fiction, and Hilary Tiemann at Penguin Random House Ballantyne in the US. And this trio of brilliant women triage my work. They each sort of had a different aspect that they wanted to bring to the fore. And so I felt unbelievably protected and safe and supported in my journey from bringing that first draft to a final draft. Why were there three editors and how did that work? Did they do it concurrently? Did they do it in different versions? How did that work? So they worked all together and they would combine their notes and provide um, their you know, singular vision um, mm. uh, on a single manuscript with a note attached outlining the larger substantive pieces. And the reason that happened is because you know, there were three big territories trying to build a global publication together. Mm. Um, and that, that's, that does happen with great regularity in the publishing business, perhaps it's not talked about too, too much, but it's certainly a model that I have, um, participated in as an editor. And, um, my experiences have always been, you know, really, really good. Uh, and, you know, sometimes something can be built that's really extraordinary with, with, the right set of eyes, the, the combo of eyes. Mm-mm. Can you remember, and did you drop to your knees when you heard the news that it, for sure it was going to be made into this movie and there was, you know, Florence attached to it? By this point, I had gained full control of my legs. And, you know, <laughs> so that was a one-time only uh, moment. But I will say I was pretty darn happy when Universal Pictures optioned the film and Florence Pugh wanted to star in it. I mean, she is, as you said, so extraordinary. What I love about her is her ability to make the most unusual, unconventional, crazy choices on the screen. And so to combine Mm. that innate ability as an actor with the character of Molly, I mean, the potential is explosive and, and, and very exciting. Oh, yes. Now let's talk about the character Molly because she, she came to you, you know, in your head on the, at that experience in London and outpoured the prologue. She is a very quirky, unique, very likable um, character. She is unique. Where in the world did Molly come from? <laughs> well, you know, I think she's a she's a medley of of things. In many ways, she's like me, and and then in fundamental ways, she's quite different. <laughs> um, years ago, before I worked as an editor, for a while I was a teacher, and I taught special needs students, teenagers, in fact. And it was such a formative part of my life, and it's a part of my life that I think about to this day. And it was one of those moments where I went in in one role, the role of a teacher, and I came out in the opposite role. I feel like I learned more from my students than I could have ever possibly taught them. One of the remarkable things that happened was when, when I'd take them outside of the classroom, you know, where, of course, we had all of these learning plans and we knew a lot about them psychologically. And, you know, those learning plans and labels were very, very helpful so that you could create an education plan that was really individualized to that student. But when I took them out into the world and we went on field trips or even just 
out to lunch. I was shocked by the casual cruelty of so-called normative people. You know, it was, it was really surprising to watch. Mm. That was the, the dark side. Now, let me tell you about the light side. These kids were more adaptable, had more resilience and strength in them than any normative person I have ever met. Mm. And I got to see how their so-called perceived weaknesses were actually enormous strengths. And I think in some ways, though it wasn't necessarily conscious, when I developed Molly, it was a tribute to to those students Mm. and to their internal strength. Mm. Now that the maid has just gone bonkers around the world and no doubt will be even more bonkers when the movie comes out and so on, what's the plan here? Because it sounds like you're writing your next one because you're still waking up at some ungodly hour. But, you know, you have this day job, but then you're going to write hit novels. What's the plan? Listen, I have the most amazing colleagues in my workplace who have been accommodating in every possible way. And that that is is a rare and um, valuable thing. I I hope because it fuels me to continue editing in my future. Um, working with authors actually gives me energy to do my own work. Um so there's that piece of it. I, but I obviously I need to find a better balance. And yes, I am working away at various things. I cannot say what I'm working on because, um, you know, they really are or what I'm going to finish. Um, I'm really working on three or four things at a time. And, oh. um, you know, like three I, or four different novels. Yes. Three or four different ideas. At a time. Novels. Yeah. Writing I'm them all. A bit of juggling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just... I'm, I'm trying things on for size, you know, it's like, you know, you go and you need a few outfits and you go to the store and you like that and this and that, but you're not sure if this one is actually going to suit you and how it's going to look. So you have to try it on, you know? Um, So that's what my process is right now. um, And I'm finding it quite exciting and fun. um, And through this, I will somehow figure out what my next steps are. Wow. All right. So you've mentioned that you have used a pen name, Nita Prose. Now, did you have a bit of a giggle to yourself that you were, you know, that's because that's what you do. You make prose Nita or? <laughs> or well, <did> you... <laughs> <laughs> there is a story behind that choice. And it's not that I decided to give myself that name per se, mm-hmm. but at work, people have called me pros for a long time. They don't call me Nita. They don't call me Pronovo. They call me pros. Hey, pros, will you look at this copy? Hey, pros, um, how's that manuscript you just got in? Hey, pros, about that recent acquisition, do you think we should publish it in the fall or in the spring? <laughs> so, you know, it's it just seemed like the most natural thing to call myself because it's a name I hear all the time. And it's also my, my Twitter handle and has been for many, many years. So... Um, I truncated my last name. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, all right. So um, let's end with what are your top three tips of two aspiring writers who want to get their debut novel out there one day? Okay. Well, um, whenever I give this sort of advice, some people inevitably don't like it. So okay. that is my caveat. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
All right. My first, because it means going backwards. So often people want to, to put their work out there before it's ready to put out there. So the first piece of advice I would say is read. Read voraciously, read like an omnivore. Don't only read inside your genre, read outside of it. And when you read, don't just read for pleasure, although that's a great thing to do on your first reading, but study form, take everything apart, dissect it, understand what the story mechanisms are. And, and you know, think to yourself, if you can learn some of those mechanisms and apply them to your own work. That is my first piece of advice. Mm -hmm. The second piece of advice is when you finished a draft of something, instead of sending it immediately to an agent or to whomever, wait, wait a week, Mm -hmm. put it away. Give yourself the time not to think about it. You know, it is such a hard thing to do to write. And you know, you are blind when you're in that narrative maze. You cannot see that is part of your function and job is not to see, but to plow ahead without knowing what's up ahead in, uh, in those hidden corners. But when you're done, so much can be learned by stepping away from your work, not thinking about it, and then coming back sometimes a week, sometimes a month later and reading it with fresh eyes. And it's Mm. at that point that you can, you know, be the gift of your own editor to yourself and really improve your work. And I guess my last piece of advice is don't give up. Writing is a vocation that takes time. It is not a craft that is developed overnight. You know, um, it's, it's okay to fail. It's okay to not get everything right at first. It's going to take time to develop your voice and your worlds and your characters, and then to, uh, you know, try out the business aspects, which can I get an agent? Will the publishers like my work? And so on. Mm, wonderful and on that note congratulations on the maids taking the world by storm everyone you need to get yourself a copy because it's such a fantastic read such a great story and such great characters thank you so much for your time today nita thank you valerie for the amazing questions This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nita Prose. I love bringing you authors from all over the world, so... um, you know, big thanks to Nita for taking the time to chat to us this week. Now, one of the things Nita mentioned, which you may have caught, was when she talked about widows and orphans. Now, some of you out there, particularly if you work in the world of publishing, you will know what widows and orphans are, or if you edit work, you will know what widows and orphans are. But if you're not familiar with what she was referring to, I just want to explain Um, what widows and orphans are in the context of publishing. Obviously, I'm not talking about actual widows and actual authors. Now, this is um, referring to publishing um, not only just in books, but also in magazines and newspapers. 
Basically, widows and orphans happen when you have a single line from a paragraph at the top of the page with the rest of the paragraph, you know, the preceding sentences on the previous page. Or you may have the first line of a paragraph at the very bottom of a page, but then the rest of the paragraph is on the next page, right? So it looks a little bit weird. A widow is when the last line of a paragraph doesn't fit at the bottom of a page or a column and it's pushed to the next page of the column, okay? That's the widow. And she sits there looking lonely and forlorn at the top of the page. Also, if a paragraph has only one or two words in the last line, even though it's on the same page, that can sometimes be called a widow too. Sometimes it's called a runt. (laughs) Now, an orphan is the opposite. That's where you have the first line of a paragraph sitting all alone at the bottom of a page and the rest of the paragraph is on the next page. So you will see some people switch the names of widows and orphans, but this is the way we describe them in the Australian publishing industry. Editors and publishers and certainly good sub-editors look out for widows and orphans during the typesetting phase, you know, when the text is being laid out, exactly how it's going to be published, you know, when it's designed. And generally speaking, editors don't like widows and orphans because they just look a bit jarring and weird. They can look messy, it's easy to skip over them. And, And when you think about newspapers and magazines especially, it doesn't make sense to have one word take up an entire line. So that's why you might find that your article gets edited slightly during the layout stage because the editor needs to make quick decisions to make sure there aren't any widows and orphans in your article. So they may cut a few words to get the paragraph to fit together on the same page or column. They may add words or they may, if they don't want to cut words, they might fix it through kerning and just squishing the letters up a little bit more. So obviously it's less of a problem with stuff that's published online because every screen is going to display the text differently anyway. You just scroll. The way it's displayed on a mobile is completely different if you've got a giant computer. But for copywriters or anyone writing the text for a graphic, it's actually really important to think about how your text is laid out so you don't have one random word at the bottom line unless you're doing that deliberately for some reason. So anyway, if your publisher talks to you about widows and orphans, now you know what they are referring to. We're now nearly at the end of this week's episode. I hope you have a good week. This week, I'm interviewing a couple more authors for the podcast who I can't wait to bring to you in the coming weeks. Uh, I'm also working with my team to finally get our YouTube channel organized, something that has been on my list for way too long. Uh, incidentally, I've started videoing my interviews with our authors, so you'll be able to check out the authors and actually see them and see their home environment if you head on over to the YouTube channel. So far, I have uploaded Candace Fox, my chat with Candace on um, her book Crimson Lake, becoming the fantastic TV series Troppo. Um, Ollie Ollerton from SAS Australia about his book All or Nothing. Gary Nunn on his book The Psychic Tests and Al Campbell, who of course wrote the fantastic book, The Keepers, but I will be adding more over time. I'll also be, well, this is completely out of left field. I'm going to a launch at a furniture store in Sydney because some of you may not know that I live a double life. Some would say triple life. uh, And one of those lives is as a designer of fabrics and wallpaper. 
I know, like I said, out of left field. So this furniture chain is launching an outdoor range of my cushions. Well, of their cushions with my designs on them. Never a dull moment over here. Always something to do. Anyway, uh, that brings us to the end of the episode. So I hope you have a good week. Thanks for listening. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.